0: Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Robin Lobb. Robin has a diverse background in intelligence, strategic planning, information technology, and management consulting. Robin's work has contributed to a variety of pursuits, including espionage, healthcare, academia, residential real estate, and civic engagement. Today, among his many roles, Robin is director-at-large at Huron and Area Search and Rescue, VP of Membership at the International Association for Intelligence Education, and he chairs the Program Advisory Committee on Big Data, Artificial Intelligence, and Mobile Apps programs at Georgian College. Today, we are going to discuss the role of intelligence in peace and security, the changing and often digital landscape of intelligence, and the value of a novel perspective. Robin, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks, Tim, for having me on. It's good to be here. It's my pleasure.
0: Also today, I have people cutting concrete outside my windows. Apologies to to you, Robin, and to my listeners. I hope I can filter most of it out. Mm-hmm. My first question involves uh, Janice Stein, who I understand was your prof at one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. In 2013, she wrote a paper titled Threat Perception, in international relations. In that paper, she wrote, quote, Central to many rationalist accounts of threat perception is the argument that leaders perceive threat and go to war because they do not have complete information. End quote. What does, what does this argument tell us about the value and dangers
1: of intelligence? Wow. I'd have to unpack at least two different trajectories running fast in reverse there. So... So I haven't heard this um, argument by Janice, but um, yeah, I'm going to have to think about this, Tim. Um, So again, she's claiming that uh, we end up in acute conflict um, because we have inadequate intelligence.
0: Well, she's
1: um, asserting
0: that the argument exists. I don't think she's claiming the argument. But she's saying that people have argued that if mm. if, if, it were not, if you have insufficient intelligence, it increases the chances of going to war.
1: Ah, well, thank you. Okay, certainly. Um, yeah. Janice is pointing out that this can lead to conflict. It can lead to war. Uh, insufficient intelligence. Intelligence, by definition, as I understand it, uh, is decision support. Uh, and the decision support uh, is meant to be a provision to decision makers of their options and the implications of the options. Uh, and it is the hope that the intelligence process and, and policies will do their best to filter out um, flaws that can emerge in the intelligence recommendations Um or I should not say, in fact, even recommendations. But in any case, uh, intelligence uh, as a trade craft, its final goal is to uh, weed out cognitive biases, political biases, etc. So certainly, in the course of attempting to uh, take biases out, uh, and yet serve your political masters. Um, we can end up with imperfect intelligence going into the hands of imperfect people, uh, in what is considered a VUCA environment, volatile, vol- volatile, uncertain, chaotic, and ambiguous. Mm-hmm. So when you add in that human drift at the leader level, mm-hmm. and then another human drift at the, uh, intelligence level where intelligence analysts are providing, um, the options, Um, the combined drift between the analyst and their imperfections, uh, the leader and their imperfections into a volatile, uncertain, chaotic, ambiguous environment, certainly there's loads of room to end up in, uh, in unfortunate conflicts.
0: And uh, in an earlier conversation, you pointed out to me that, of course, there's another side to it, and that is the attempt to to um, deceive potential enemies. Right? It's not just that you're collecting information; you're trying to trying to deceive them into possibly seeing you as having more capability than you really have, as a way to avoid conflict.
1: That's that's one of the many um, gambits that we have. Certainly. Um, to mislead the enemy either with, uh, an inflated sense of our capabilities, um, or, uh, an erroneous sense of our intentions. Um, additionally, an erroneous sense of their capabilities is something we do like to sow, uh, so they may think they're going to be able to get their tanks to a certain line at a certain time. We'd like them to think this erroneously. Um, so that's just in the sort of kinetic warfare, uh, environment. In the information warfare environment, uh, you can seed their, their data, their information pool with, uh, erroneous information, uh, either about us or about them, um, leading to flawed intelligence. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to work that.
0: Um, so you've touched on your definition of intelligence and we've uncovered two possible threads. There is deceiving, but also collecting information that's valuable to decision support. In the context of the word intelligence, the way we're using it today, like central intelligence agency, how do you define the word intelligence? What other threads are there to it?
1: I I think people tend to think of intelligence in that classical or conventional sense as uh, being about national security intelligence or national security. And so that's at the state level, and it tends to be in the realm of espionage, warfare, um, and protecting our national integrity. Um, so that that's the, the classical sense. If one wants to uh, then think more broadly, which I do like to explore, then we think, Again, it's decision support. It's not simply, um, you know, spying and and espionage, but what can we do in decision support broader than just espionage? Well, we can serve the national interests of of a country uh, by helping it anticipate and prepare for and and mitigate and manage a climate issue or a, a COVID issue or a regional conflict um all sorts of it could be supply chain issues so right now people are wondering how do we manage um a lack of of grain coming out of ukraine russia etc and people think oh we need to be worried about uh that grain and and really one of the key issues is fertilizer and fertilizer One of its main components comes from petroleum. So it's the petroleum supply that we're really, really worried about and how that impacts Uh, the more we're having to plant crops on more fragile land as we have urban sprawl uh, heating up the best soils, um, the more we need fertilizer on those fragile lands as we further uh, exploit that soil structure, which breaks it down at, say, twice the speed of normal soil, Uh, if we look at the US, for instance, it's lost 45% of its topsoil in the last century, and given current practices, uh, would lose all of it, you know, within the next hundred years. Um, So part of that's about petroleum, and part of it's about um, soil practices, soil cultivation practices. But in any case, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on when we talk about um, intelligence. i like to look broader than the classical um, area and look for where could a country, say like Canada, um, be able to leverage some of the intelligence capability it has uh, to serve broader needs than just national security. That's a, it's a part of the dialogue that every country's having.
0: Sure. The, the, the notion that what they're doing is not just for their own security, but the world's security. And if you live in a secure world, your nation is more secure. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, indeed.
0: Um, you describe yourself as an intelligence education evangelist. What are Mm -hmm. the challenges, uh, today in the
1: intelligence education space? Wow. well. I'd say to begin with, um, intelligence education has had an opportunity to uh, mature in the U.S., for instance, where there is an intelligence community so formalized that it has funding resources to ensure that there are uh, educational programs, undergraduate, graduate certificate programs in a number of of, uh, public universities um, Canada is a different creature altogether. Uh, we have not had an existential attack on us that would drive an appetite for us to have this different type of funding and, and intelligence community and intelligence culture. Um, so it's a very different, you go to Europe and they've had a radically different experience from Canada and, um, they too have, a different intelligence education culture across all those different nations. Um, That said, it's interesting to watch what's emerging in Europe with the European Union and a bit of uh, overall governance uh, impacting on its intelligence education.
0: Um, It's been said that the first casualty in war is truth. Do intelligence agencies view the internet as a battlefield these days?
1: Wow, two points there. Then I like both of them. I recently said at the Institute of War Studies in Warsaw um, last December, just as things were really getting frightening around Putin and nuclear weapons and AI. Uh, at the end of my speech there, I I said to the the community. Um, that uh, in the industrial age, in industrial war, the first casualty of war is the truth. Uh, but I would contend that in the information age, in info war, the first casualty of info war is trust. And I say that because I see it as if, if we should have an issue of, say, for instance, AI Having us detonate uh, something kinetic, uh, a car that that kills uh, a friendly, then our so-called presidents will not trust our intelligence community, uh, and likewise our public won't trust our leaders, and and that's where we get into you know the most critical of trust problems, as we have big data, AI, and quantum computing tightening that intelligence cycle, um, shortening the, the loop, um, we're going to be having more errors, more frequent errors, errors that happen faster, um, bigger, and of new types. Mm-hmm. All of that is going to mean that we need to, as much as we can be building our technology faster, the, the big data, AI, and quantum, we need to be doing something to balance the oversight, governance, and ethics. And uh, that harkens back to Failsafe in the 60s, uh, a famous novel that captured the world's fear and attention in, uh, in its time, where that was a case of what if, by sheer accident, all of the nuclear failsafes safes failed, and, and the U.S. launched all of its nuclear weapons on Moscow. Uh, and uh, the only option for the. US president was to um, tell Moscow it would nuke New York City and um, today our fail-safe issue is what if um, all the measures that we have to prevent uh, a nuclear event from happening what if that should happen and what are the implications and and the the people thinking about these things today say it it's far more dangerous today than it was back then. Mm. There are so many things set in place that if the wrong thing happened, everything could be set in motion, and tactical nukes lead to strategic nukes. Um,
0: you have compared the potential impact of quantum computing to nuclear war. Uh, what can quant- what can quantum computing do that's so
1: dire? Well, just, you know, I just came from a meeting with a group called UDA and, uh, sort of defense intelligence community folks where we were talking about this exact issue. Um, and I'm going to have you repeat the question just so the audience hears this again.
0: Sure. Um, you have compared the potential impact of quantum computing to nuclear war. What can quantum computing do that's so
1: dire? So what we talked about was harvest now, decrypt later. So some of the so-called worst countries in the world, um, or at least the most powerful countries in the world, have harvested everybody's emails, every company's emails, every defense email, and any other file out there. They've all been harvested one way or another, knowing that um, quantum computing, one of its capabilities will be decryption of anything. So five years from now, 10 years from now, every single thing will be a potential asset uh, to, to attack any given citizen anywhere. Um, quantum certainly uh quantum computing will at some point in the next 10 or 20 years be able to do a few different things certainly some of it is encryption and decryption Uh, some of it is remarkably enhanced sensing and simulation where sensing could be satellite or other sensing devices Uh, simulation is creating simulations um and, and it, it can also do some remarkable computer operations. Uh, that isn't as lewd a capability as, as what we're concerned about with the decryption. But um, where, where uh, nuclear weapons, um, as uh, Tannenwald and Gazuski write, uh, have a nuclear taboo uh, where the weapons exist, but there's a taboo against using them. And that's what we're hoping Putin is considering right now. Where there's a nuclear taboo, I'm proposing that there's a a Q taboo, a quantum taboo where we don't know where it can end with what quantum computing can do, what's going to emerge when you combine quantum with AI in the next 10 years, for instance. Um, And so there is a culture of, of concern about where that's going to go. And that is what I would call a Q taboo, the quantum taboo. Uh, We don't want to let it run roughshod in the hands of anyone who would like to exploit it for any given reason.
0: So I've heard that narrative, not in connection to quantum computing, but definitely in terms of AI. AI has similar risks of being runaway capability that people could use that would uh, so far, outstrip the ability of people to secure systems even today. That suddenly your 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 protections are are, are going to vanish. Um, is this related to the term you've coined, intellectual asymptote, applied to AI? Or, like, is is what are you looking at when you talk about that uh, asymptote, and and what what's the utility of looking at at computing capability that way?
1: Well, I, I'm thinking of uh, just the property of an asymptote is forever approaching but never getting there. So it means uh, perpetual improvement, uh, you know, perpetually approaching the so-called axis without um, making a one-to-one ratio. So if if AI and and uh, say Chappie, GPT, for instance, is looking at, <clears throat> um querying the data out there, it's forever asking, you know, how do we get closer to the best answer? But it's never asking, how do we get the exact correct answer? And, um, realizing there's this so-called, so-called notional, uh, intellectual asymptote. It, um, just the expression itself makes people think, um, That that's concerning. It'll never reach a one to one. It's it's um, and it's provocative, just or evocative, um, to think of the same emotional asymptote or cognitive asymptote. But I think of that uh, that is what we're observing with these technologies. They're coming closer and closer, uh, and there's a tendency to see a greater speed as you get. Closer to the axis as well. So we'll see how that uh, plays out with AI.
0: Um, Can you talk about the goals of a group you belong to called the Gray Swan Guild?
1: The goals of them, they are meant to be sense makers. um, Or we are meant to be sense makers. Where, um, yeah, we, we are just continually in a process of Of churning what are the latest uh, concerns that are on the horizon or just over the horizon and how can we do better to prepare so partly that's preparing as uh, a group Um, how do we make sure the right expertise is um, digesting these things metabolizing these things Um, I, I think of um what we're doing to understand, uh, what's going on in Ukraine, for instance, where in the past year, I've been in meetings where we look at, you know, who got that right. So this is a sense-making exercise. So we say to ourselves, Ukraine got it wrong. They did not expect this, um, to unfold the way it did. Russia got it wrong. The U S got it wrong and the West, uh, The U.S. wanted this to be um, characterized as uh, an attack against NATO and the West. Well, Ukraine wasn't going to let that happen. It wasn't going to be about NATO. Um, Russia wanted it to be an attack against Russia by the West. Well, again, Ukraine was not going to let that happen. It was going to make sure it held... The reins on this. Mm -hmm. Um, Interestingly, we now think of this conflict as a new type of warfare in that it includes two new elements. One is uh, the war is characterized in some degree by super rich individuals. And that's a reference to Musk and his communications. Uh, We've never seen somebody just change an entire war by fiat like this. Um, another one is, um, the, uh, how do we say the disaggregated swarm dynamic where the world's hacker communities essentially coalesced around anything they wanted to real time with real time, you know, fluid intelligence, they were, um, able to, you know, cut Putin down at, at his knees, uh, repeatedly. Um, all kinds of tactics were used. We've never seen before. And that kind of disaggregated swarm dynamic, uh, radically, radically changed warfare going forward. Uh, it makes me think of Bellingcat. It makes me think of Gray Swan Guild. It it makes me think of a lot of these groups that are kind of new, um, given that warfare has so radically changed, uh, intelligence has so radically changed with open source information, um, partly as a function of so-called big data, um, just the plethora of data that, that is created and, and vacuumed up all the time and, uh, and how we work with that big data and now with AI processing that big data.
0: So the notion that that um, there's so much data out there, so much capability to get information. We know we've got satellites, we've got flyovers, we get drones. Um, you can you can even pick up activities based on Wi-Fi signals. You can even use wi- Wi-Fi to see what's in, inside a room these days. There's all kinds. And so to me, it sort of feels like if you're in a knife fight in the dark and then somebody flips on the light, that doesn't necessarily give an advantage to one party or the other but I mean so explain that Dinette like the sort of the fact that there's so much more visibility does it help the attacker does it help the defender how does that play out
1: Mm, wow big question Um, certainly the light going on or say in this case big data um, when intelligence communities look at open source information um, they see that open source information today is far more powerful than closed source information was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's so much more in the hands of citizens coming back to Grace One as sense makers or Bellingcat as citizen, disaggregated citizen, you know, intelligence of a sort. Um, yeah. A knife fight in the dark, the light goes on. Um, there's so much more to that knife fight that I'd like to talk about. <laughs> but we'll leave knife fights out of it today. Um, yeah, no, it's a great way to pose that question. If the light goes on, it goes on for everyone. Um, and, and that is one of the existential battles that Russia and China and and the U.S. are having is, you know, how much can their intelligence services do? Um, if, if you look at how intelligence, you know, holds civil society together in the U.S., if somebody's doing an investigation, uh, uh a law enforcement agency, um, they can't ask their intelligence services to simply share the information Uh, in Canada if an intelligence service shared information to help save somebody's life through a a law enforcement. um, It's fair for the um, defendant to be able to ask for all of the information that happened to be gathered by that method on that day. Um, That sort of issue... um, there's just so much more at play when we talk about a knife fight in the dark kind of question, but I love the question. Keep asking these questions; this is well, fun. Tim. So,
0: so let's take another angle on that, and this may be uh, entirely stereotypical and and even you know self congratulatory, but I I think that with all that information that's available suddenly, mm. uh, and and the fact that you can act on it so quickly favors the West over Russia, because it seems to me that Russia has a more ossified command and control structure.
1: Yeah, you'd be right. Yeah, that gives us a remarkable advantage. I, I know back in the Cold War, it would be argued that the West has better technical intelligence, but Russia has better human intelligence. Um, they still have remarkable human intelligence. They also have remarkable failures, but um, yeah, they are very uneven intelligence cultures. You go to China and it's very different again. And speaking
0: of human intelligence, it's it has to be complicated by the fact that ethnically there's a lot of commonality on both sides of the border. So it's not like spotting an Asian person in Sweden you can blend in a lot more and you see there's, there's special forces from Ukraine and Russia operating apparently.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What's your question?
0: Oh, I don't know. I just thought that was complicating things. I'll move on to uh, another thing that you've talked about and that mm-hmm. is uh strategic foresight mm-hmm. and, and uh, it has a lot in, I, I guess it is a common Effort in both the intelligence, meaning state intelligence, but also in the civilian world. How do you how, how do you see strategic foresight being applied in the civilian world? Mm. Thank
1: you for asking. Um, I had the opportunity last year to get some strategic foresight essentials training in uh, sort of both sides of a spectrum with a former assistant director of CIA. Um, Training me up, you know, from from that point of view. And then somebody from uh, a RAND spinoff called the Institute for the Future, where I got to learn and it felt sort of like a commercial versus political, um, but certainly the crown jewels of, of getting that kind of opportunity. And um, strategic foresight, I think, is, you know, uh, the most interesting intelligence work that a person can do, that said, tactical, you know, making sure somebody survives uh, in the field um would be, of course, critical importance. But coming back to trying to save people a- ahead of time, you know, using strategic, um, in the in the I guess the public, realm. Um, That is where I come back to, where do we use what is an essential intelligence tool, strategic foresight? Where do we use that to serve public interests, public needs? Where does decision support about the future um, help in the public? And, And I think it helps us make decisions now about the future. So it is a very now thing. And and the better that strategic foresight gets as a result of big data, AI, and quantum computing, uh, the faster we're able to to think about things. The better we're able to think about these things, and and the more scenarios we get to think about. So where strategic foresight commonly looks at, say, four quadrants in the future, say Russia in Increases or Russia declines, and environment increases or ru- environment declines, and you look at those four scenarios. With quantum computing, with AI, um, as quantum computing, you know, is about zeros and ones, but not just in that binary state, but in a super state of an infinite number of zero and one um, positionings. We'll be able to look with with these advanced technologies at not simply four quadrants, but a super state, an infinite number of these scenarios. And we'll be able to query those scenarios and, and develop, you know, what if scenarios looking at the delta, you know, how big is the gap we have to cross if we're going to have these different outcomes. Um, it's going to be able to help us think with... Friends, neutrals, and enemies—how we can overcome things that are that are coming to us in the future. So imagine we can use, um, you know, enhanced strategic foresight to look at how do we work with, you know, a few neutrals and a few enemies in the future to ensure that our species isn't wiped out. We'll definitely be motivated if. Each of us doing our own strategic foresight comes up with the same same um, scenarios. So for me, strategic foresight um, is becoming more and more exciting every day. I, I think I've mentioned to you, I, I always think of a few different guardrails to just begin the conversation, which is, you know, what if we proceed on whatever the issue is, as is, uh, a linear Trajectory into the future, say ten years, twenty years into the future, and we call that forecasting. And then we look at a maximum and minimum uh, deviation that are plausible. So, what's the most we could plausibly increase a condition or decrease it? And and then I begin looking between those guardrails, and um, and that's where you can start to motivate your friends, your neutrals, your. Your competitors, whoever it may be. It's exciting times. So, the the this isn't a question, but it reminds me of, and spoiler alerts
0: if you haven't watched the whole Marvel series, but there was a plot point and it was an artistic sort of demonstration of what you're talking about where Doctor Strange went and looked at every possible future and then came back and mm. said, there's only one path to save, you know, half the human race or whatever. And 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 it it was like, obviously the mechanism is very different because he was actually going into the future and taking a look, but it still illustrates that idea that, you know, you can actually fill in not just the ends of the quadrants, but all the space in between. Yeah. Um, You wrote an article titled, Are You a Code Whisperer? And in it, you... Advocate for organizations to use the data they or actually I guess actually the book you were talking about advocates for organizations to use the data they collect, not just to understand their customers, but also their individual employees. hmm Um and then in that article, you sort of introduced the notion of a code whisperer. What is a code whisperer and what role can they play in organizational design?
1: Mm-hmm. So I'll I'll come back to your part of your initial point, which is. Uh, a book about companies and how they might behave. Um, and, and specifically the behavior was valuing their employees ahead of valuing their customers, uh, which takes you to the question, you know, getting to know your market. Uh, well, it turns out your first market is your own team. And unless they are true believers in, in your success um, they won't be investing 100% of what they can in that, and so you need to make sure that whatever you're doing, it is something that rightfully and healthily is attracting the very best people that you possibly can, and thereafter, you will be attracting the very best customers possible. So that's, that's one tenet, which... I, certainly any intelligent person subscribes to um, not everybody has the luxury of pursuing that but but that makes good sense to me and um, and the the second part uh, was what's code whispering so uh, code means um, understanding what it is that say your employee wants and needs uh, what appeals to them what um, understand a bit about the timing in their say career arc so it isn't just static data points about this person but try to map to the cadence that that's you know resonating within their set of considerations um so certainly it's it's that empathy that it's like a cultural ergonomics at the individual level um so yeah it's, it's empathizing deeply with, um, your, your employees, both individuals and as a group, so-called tribe, um, where say Descartes knew to take the scientific method and drill down maximally to the most granular level. He did so at the expense of our whole medical system, losing the social component that can so much serve health. Likewise, in a company or an organization. It is important to have an ability to be drilling down or keeping broad and and letting everybody know that both of these things are a function. Um, so when it comes to code whispering, how does a person you know pursue that deep empathy in uh, in the intelligence world? Empathy is a very simple uh, definition. It's simply understanding something or someone well enough to influence it. And it doesn't have to go deeper than that. Um, Very, uh, I guess, uh, functional way of looking at it. Uh, um, With code whispering, it's really how do you decipher or decode what it is that that person needs? And then how do you um, demonstrate that you are both doing it and perceived to be doing it? To be meeting the needs, to be to trying to understand the needs of your staff, um, your 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 friends, your family. If your friends and family aren't seeing that, then you know you're going to be struggling with with doing it for yourself or your organization. So code whispering is, of course, a reference to the horse whisperer and um, somebody who can sort of whisper secrets into the ear of a creature that doesn't even speak your language, but whom you can help to, in the case of a horse, overcome uh, sort of a PTSD. Uh, it's, it's you know, a cagey startled horse. How do you calm it? Uh,
0: so there, there strikes me as a commonality between um, how leadership can construct an environment where the, the mission and the work is evident to the individual um, and the, the notion of dis, uh, distributed autonomous organizations where people can basically find a way to be useful. And, and it requires, of course, that mission and that encouragement, but it also requires transparency to that individual to say, what is useful? You know, how can you contribute to the mission? Um, and so what, what? Because I know that you sort of looked into attempting, uh, at least exploring, uh, uh, code whispering. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what does it entail? Like, is it is it a, a matter of surfacing what people can do, or or how do, how does it actually function?
1: For, for me, it functions sort of in a hands-on way. I have to uh, look at something I need to learn about, and either find a project that I will get to hands-on and and mind-on take that issue apart, or I work with individuals related to it to help them experience what is the issue they want to better understand so that they can influence it. How do they empathize with it? It it can go as deep as um, empathizing by means of comedy. Unless you understand somebody of another culture well enough to be able to tell a joke to them in their own language such that they uh, have a belly laugh you probably don't understand that individual well enough to be able to overcome uh, uh, issues between you and their country Um, so it's about empathizing so I tend to take a a hands on approach to uh, tearing an issue open either with another individual or on my own, creating an, a project or an initiative. And, um, and so I'm doing it every day. I'm creating projects with young students, with young experts, with old experts, um, every day. So one of my favorite old experts, as I say, is a uh, uh, dear friend, Shalom, who's a philosopher in residence. And, and we mull over this, this idea of the mechanical and chemical patient. Model, which um, is, is a deeply flawed model, and it's the one we use in med schools and in healthcare. And uh, you know, we we completely take apart, going back to Plato. Um, what was the thinking that that brought us through the different medical models up to today? And and it's a fascinating experience. It's like these conversations with you when you brought up the DAO, I immediately wanted to flip the interview and say, tell me, you know, what what do you think is the biggest surprise today with DAOs? Like, how is their traction coming along?
0: Well, I will confess that the term DAO is new to me. Um, mm. The way it came up was I was looking into uh, what a former guest on my former podcast called um, Unusually Well-Informed, Joe Justice uh uh-huh. great name easy to remember yeah. he um he is an what they call an agile coach agile is a, is an approach to and of course I know, you know space yeah yeah it, for the audience it's an effort to sort of really loosen up and and make sure that you're not plan 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 do 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 oh it's not working out you plan do plan do plan do and you have a lot of yeah. feedback
1: fail early fail often yeah
0: exactly and he's applying yeah. that mindset to manufacturing and when you do that when you take that interest one of the standouts is is Elon Musk's company you know Musk that you already mentioned SpaceX Tesla how is it they're able to do what what is famously possible in software where you can change over and over continuous integration mm. how do you do that in hardware uh. and so he introduced me to the notion of digital self management which is basically if I'm working at McDonald's, I don't need to ask my boss how many Big Macs to make. There's a screen. And at Tesla, they have screens. And at uh, even at SpaceX, it, it doesn't get to the level of a Big Mac. But when you're when you're standing at a urinal at SpaceX, it tells you how many rocket motors need to be built this week. Oh. The screen over the urinal. You know, like a oh, mission in front of you all the time. Wow. And And so he was saying that at Tesla, he, he was able to see uh, breadcrumbs of that digital self-management. And it got to the point where he tells a story where he was work walk, walking through the factory and saw somebody just on a machine bending aluminum tubes and scrap, all kinds of scrap. But he's like, I can help you design that. I can help you work out the kinks. And then that tube actually wound up being part of the a conduit to connect the wall plug or the the charge port to the battery and because it was in a conduit they could run higher uh amperage and because of that they were able to charge the battery faster and so you have a car that charges faster just from a couple people thinking what's what's important to the company right so being able to surface what the complaints are what are holding people back from engaging with your company and having Mm -hmm. that digitally available Mm -hmm. um i think is is it, it, What you were talking about with the code whisperer and trying to optimize the employee experience struck me as being
1: interrelated. Yeah, yeah, and I get that now. Thank you for that. It, it's making me think uh, how blockchain can enable um, Web3 and, and the DAO and, and all of this. And, and will there be a brave new world where everybody has this perfectly even citizenry? in this platform where as a result of transparency and, and fluidity uh, some virtues can be experienced.
0: Yeah. Well, we're getting into some pretty fun stuff here because it it, it strikes me that uh, like I was, I was thinking about how difficult it is to get this idea of a DAO or what um, uh, uh, I forget the name of the CEO of Zappos. He had the concept of, Polacracy, which mm. was really like, not only are we flat, we don't have a structure. Like everybody just looked for something useful to do, contribute to the company. Um, the the fact that this is so rare and a, and a rejection of the way companies are normally structured, it made it it got me thinking about how corporations are symbols of capitalism, but they function like communist dictatorships.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: You have the central planners telling everybody what to do, and, and it's command and control all the way down. And th- there's a rejection of that. There's trying to be much less uh, rigid than it used to be.
1: As you say that, it's making me think of a book called Starfish or something, I forget, but Starfish is um, having a flat administrative uh, structure to your organization. And if if the center dies, a new center grows onto the legs, mm-hmm. and um, certainly after nine eleven, Al Qaeda has Al Qaeda has what you just described. Al Qaeda actually means the base. There's no hierarchy, yeah. so we're all idiots going, "Oh no, they're called Al Qaeda." Yeah, they're called the base. <laughs> There's no hierarchy. Guess what? You kill one of them and and they have a resilience that's undefinable in our own conception it's it's remarkable um yeah so this flat hierarchy it it isn't even about being flat it's about removing the hierarchy mm-hmm. and uh so it gives a fluidity right it, it's an amorphous it it's it's a zero g organizational structure right it isn't about flat like the earth is flat is about how you know the 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 mental concept that it's flat is as backwards as the earth being flat it's it's simply without structure right fascinating
0: and and, and it, it's the trouble of course is that without command and control structure you don't always get what you want and there are examples yeah. like uh like uh, my son was telling me that Steam, the company behind uh, a lot of video games, they have this kind of holocracy structure. Huh. Uh, and if you go to Glassdoor, mm. <laughs> uh, the employee or the employer review site, kind of like Yelp for employers, mm. uh, people are complaining about office politics because you know where there's a vacuum, you know human human uh,
1: behavior will assert itself sometimes in ways that aren't helpful to the Overall That's so funny. The organization, you say that it's reminding me of a vacuum joke. Forgive me, but I'm going to share. Yeah, I was, I was in a meeting last year about AI, and uh, some scientists had discovered with the Rumba that uh, the second generation was afraid of the dark, and they're all looking at like, what on earth has happened? They discovered that the original AI in the Rumba that helps it to you know not go over stairs and not suck up cats or whatever, uh, the original AI was instructed to create its own second generation and the, um, second generation was avoiding chaos locations like dark corners. And nobody can understand why the, the vacuums were avoiding the dark. Why are, why are these vacuums afraid of the dark? And of course this is AI in a vacuum. Very
0: nice. Okay. Without without human uh, oh, yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Human supervision. I love it. Yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> so um, strange. So this is uh and this is maybe something that you can't get into or you can tell me that um you've heard through the grapevine, but not part of your experience. But one of the challenges of doing uh espionage and intelligence gathering in the field has to be that you can't tell. The people doing the job, the big picture. And so you've got this really difficult motivational structure where, you know, I can't tell you why I've asked you to count all the cars in the parking lot in that particular building in Moscow. I can't. Mm. I can't tell you, I can't tell you because it admits what I don't know. It tells you it admits what I do know, you know, the old John LeCarey thing. Mm. Um and so, and so it must be very difficult to motivate people in the field.
1: Uh, The people who are in the field, whether it's our intelligence officers or agents acting on behalf of us in their own countries, are almost exclusively deeply motivated by uh, national interests. They, um, They are motivated most often by good reasons. Now, the people we may be working with on foreign soil or with foreign nationals who know how to motivate their own locals, um, there are any number of means of motivating those people. But it's for national security reasons. It's not for just you know, improving some small thing in some small way. It's It's got to be you know, part of a, a big picture that's An enormous imperative. Um, Different countries have different intelligence cultures. Um, Classically, well, Russia has its own reputation. China would have a reputation of working long-term, working with its diaspora around the world. Um, And there's a, a lot of different intelligence cultures out there. Canada doesn't have an intelligence culture of Doing you know foreign spying abroad, um, and the U.S. certainly has a very esteemed and, and storied history of many successes and and failures in, in this area. Um, but I yeah I don't shy away from the question, but I invite you to ask some follow up, some refinement.
0: Well, it just. Uh... Because we were talking about the motivation of people and how the motivation of people, you know, certainly in in my light of work, when when I'm asking somebody to do something, I go to great pains to make sure they see where that puzzle piece fits. Because that's part of the motivation. You know, the whole, I'm not, I'm not laying bricks, I'm building a cathedral idea. Mm. And if you're if you're in the field, you can't be you're certainly not going to be shown plans to the cathedral is what I'm getting yeah. at. But as you point out, they are aware that the cathedral exists and that's their motivation. They may not be able to see the big picture, but
1: yeah. I mean, you have to create real and honest relationships with these people so that they do see that you have something at stake as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's, it's not an easy thing. Collection, is a discipline all its own in in the intelligence world you know we can talk all we want about intelligence education and how do we pr- improve uh, you know structured analytical techniques sats and 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 those are things that in the course of performing them correctly can help identify and and mitigate and manage cognitive or political biases those are all nice things learning how to do collection in a way that you know, then you can use that information in a way that effectively supports decision-making. Um, that's an enormous discipline all its own that you and I, I'm sure, will will have a talk someday about that. But um, it, it's worth noting that uh, they collect the dots, we connect the dots. Right. It's uh, radically different, but tech
0: is, t- is that... Correct to call that part of the role the analyst role that you're collecting the dots, and, and is the analyst who tries to reach a conclusion on that, or is it not
1: divided that neatly? You need it divided. Yeah. Uh, so the analyst is on the connecting the dots. Right. The collector collects the dots. So, um, and then and then you have to go up levels uh, to people, maybe for one reason or another, telling you what they can. So that you're maybe thinking about something in an effective way for them to be able to further support their policy uh, folks about them.
0: So let me swim back to more familiar shores and talk about my day job a little bit. Um, it inc- I work at York University and it includes supporting uh, students and faculty who use uh, geographic information systems in their studies and in their research. Does video or sorry, does visualizing geographic data play a role in your work? I mean, you've you've had places where that might impact. I mean, certainly yes, or or intelligence, but also healthcare and civic
1: engagement. Like what role does it play? Uh, well, it's enormous. And and for me, it's prime because I have a cognitive disorder where I'm constantly flowcharting any document I'm I'm learning from and, and then having to sort of visually paraphrase that, much like an infographic. And, and you can create infographics of multiple modalities on the same topic and reveal completely different things um, or, in fact, contaminate the thinking on it. Um, it's enormously important. I, I had some of my big data students do uh, heat maps of Toronto for the last 20 years for the elections at all three levels, municipal, provincial, federal. Um, Never looking at who somebody voted for. I didn't want to politicize it. Um, Just looking at voter outcome, you know, around 40%. We looked at it at the most granular level, at the vote level, at the poll, to just see are there any trends that we might learn from. Um, and then I asked the students to look at, find the top five correlates that may be issues of interest to those local voters as expressed in their, um, neighborhood associations. And then I took that information and, and offered it out to all those neighborhood associations for free and then how to use this information and, um, to make sure that the people who know the narrative of the data the best, that context, make sure that um, they are, if at all possible, empowered or enabled by by seeing some some deviations, some patterns in in the voting. Um, and the notion there was, gosh, I wish people could see um, some trends, learn something. Um, for me, it was remarkable. I mean, I, I looked at one area where the students presented it as though the dogs and cats were voting. It, like <laughs> That's that's what the um, data was pointing to. It was bizarro. And it, it's simply that families that had dogs sometimes had cats. Families with dogs were voting more. Families with dogs happened to correlate, but not causally, with having more children. And and so they happened to have a stake more locally, this sort of thing. But, you know, I'm working with so many students from abroad, and so they are so freed up from, um, being, uh, how do you say, well, sh- shaped by our, our, local history. Um, and it was just wonderful watching them come up with these ideas. I had another uh, area where it showed hundred percent voter turnout. And so the students were all excited and I said, that's nine people in a new assisted living condo downtown there's nine people who were signed you know to be able to vote there I said you know and that's why you need not simply the data but the data context uh, there's of course the old saying uh, if you torture data long enough it will tell you anything you want to know and 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 that should be a warning so yeah I I mean I love looking at infographics partly because I'm that's the way I'm broken, I need to, and and then partly I can more rapidly and effectively share and information and knowledge and, and motivate people. And yeah. So let's look
0: at that a little more closely because you've said to me that you don't just see the world differently, you look at the world differently. Mm. What
1: shapes this difference and how does it benefit your work? Um which shapes the difference. So I have a cognitive disorder, so-called learning disability, which makes my reading comprehension uh, maybe a little more complex than the average person. Uh, Not very efficient, typically. Uh, Everybody is somewhere on some sort of spectrum of that, and everybody changes on a given day of the week. Um, I I tend to have a very low ability in, in reading comprehension, and, um, so I not only see the world differently in terms of, of that cognitive disorder, but as a result, I choose to look at the world differently. So when I went to University of Toronto to study peace and conflict studies, I was interested in conflict, sounded like a very cool theory, very cool discipline. So. Peace sounded a little soft, but I'd done loads and loads of peace related things and continued to do so when I was at U of T. But um, the conflict thing sounded cool in my own mind. And so I thought I want to learn this as best as possible. So I thought I want to learn on as many different spectrums or axes as possible. And I want to learn what I can about the extreme polar ends of these axes. So individual group, local, global, left-wing, right-wing, theoretical, practical, all these different ways, and have all these different um, axes that I could locate an issue somewhere on each axis, and then triangulate on a solution that optimally would draw upon these different ways of looking at it. So I was thinking, you know, there's emerging problems that are of a new type, and, and maybe this will help me to to think about, uh, solutions. And, and so that's a way that I think that I look at the world differently. So I see it differently in that I have a learning disability and I look at it differently in that a lot of folks will just, you know, try to look from one perspective of, of one discipline. Um, an example of that would be a palliative care project I created where I was working at Mount Sinai Hospital, and saw that uh, some people leaving the clinic seemed less happy than others, and I asked questions. And so I started a little side gig project of my own in my spare time, got some professors from U of T, York, elsewhere, to come together, and, and we looked at what about palliative care practices from East and West? Let's look at Tibetan Buddhism versus Canadian Judeo-Christian, whatever you want to call it. And um, at the end of the day, um, it did have some effective outcomes, Uh, a Buddhist chaplain working in the downtown hospitals. Um, But it was interesting to take what I learned and then give a talk at uh, the semiotics department at Queens on how, um, if you look at the dying and death process, Um, and the soul and you think of the soul for people who believe in reincarnation and rebirth if that soul is akin to a fetus because it's about to go to somebody new then dying and death actually become labor and birth and if hospitals and doctors are to do no harm to a so-called fetus then they have to take a second look at what they're doing with with palliative care practices and and so that's me sort of looking at things differently, looking at dying and death as labor and birth. Mm-hmm. And and I have a I guess a long history of looking at things differently.
0: So this brings me to my last question. And I thank you so much, Robin. This has been a terrific conversation. My my last question is: do you see a through line in in your work and all the work that you've done? And if so can you draw that line into the future and imagine
1: what your future looks like? Wow. Yeah. That's, that's like a conversation for around a campfire sure. or, yeah. or, or over
0: a sixth pint. And the a, podcast is oh. not running out of time. I don't have sponsors waiting to run their ad. <laughs> that's great.
1: Uh, yeah. Through line for me, I think it is, uh, well, I'm just going to shoot from the hip. Uh, certainly, um, looking at things differently, um, and, and empathy and I think those are two key things trying to decrypt the situation, um, decipher the situation depending on, I guess that's numbers versus letters, perhaps, um, but understanding things that are not well understood, that's that's my favorite game. And where that could take me, yeah, you know, I'm I'm looking at all the neat projects that I get to do with IAFI, with the International Association for Intelligence Education. And that's such a brave new world. That's looking at um an organization that's you know really hitting its stride. And looking at how is education, uh, you know, an area that we can begin to develop better best practices, um, and and look at intelligence in a, a broader sense than simply espionage and national security, but beyond national security to national interests, which can, as I say, use strategic foresight. To support really concerning struggles that the public's having, you know, as I said, climate or or COVID or whatever it may be, um, there's just so many ways to to broaden that uh, intelligence culture, um, and that's that's me being the intelligence education evangelist, uh, I suppose I've nailed my uh, my, my messaging. <laughs> at the end of the chat. But I, I look forward to to more discussions with you. And I, I just deeply appreciate uh, the experience of getting to have this conversation with you.
0: It's been a delight for me as well. Thank you so much, Robin. My guest today was Robin Lobb. How can people get in touch with you or connect with you?
1: Uh, well, I'm at RobinLobb at Gmail. Um, so I'm sure you can plug that link in somewhere. Um, That's probably the the fastest way to do so. Um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the humanity in the loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.